Hey, this is Zach. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I wanted to take just a minute or two here at the beginning to say you're about to hear a great episode with Hannah Brockhouse. We recorded this, well, this had been on the books for a while. We'd scheduled this um, several weeks ago, so long before the death of George Floyd and the uh, current unrest, protest, conversations about racial inequality that we're witnessing and a part of now. Uh, and so we don't talk about that much in this episode. But I want to make sure it's it's that you understand it's not because it's not important. It's not because we don't want to talk about it. It's because this was already scheduled prior to this. And we're working to uh, find guests to bring on the show and talk about those very important issues that are are long overdue and really need to happen. From the vantage point of Creedal Catholic, um, I think it's important as Catholics to be a part of these conversations and not just to be a part of them, not just to be a passive participant, but to be an active participant and even a leader in these conversations. Uh, Father Josh Johnson, who's a black priest in Louisiana and has a great, uh, great podcast you should hear called Ask Father Josh. He talks about this a lot. He's very passionate about racial equality. I actually reached out to him several months ago to ask him about coming on the podcast. Um, and, and we're trying to make it happen. Uh, I have a soft commit from him for end of July. So it's, it's probably going to be a, a ways before he's able to come on. Um, but he's talking about this stuff in, in ways that many Catholics simply are not, uh, either because they're ignorant, and I can include myself uh, in that group for sure, or perhaps unwilling, and that's, of course, a worst-case scenario. We shouldn't be unwilling to talk about this. Our, our black brothers and sisters in the church are the body of Christ, and we need to recognize what they go through, uh, what they have come through. We need to recognize that systemic and structural inequalities and racism are certainly realities in America. Um, and, and the very fact that we don't encounter them as white Americans uh, or non-black Americans doesn't mean that they don't exist. Uh, and I think the lived experience of so many of our brothers and sisters do testify that they do exist. So these are conversations worth having. We're going to have Father Josh on the show, hopefully end of July. We're going to hopefully have uh, another person you may recognize. I'm not going to share her name yet because um, she's not 100% confirmed, but we're trying to get her on sooner rather than later. So hopefully within the next week or two, you'll hear, um, you'll hear a discussion on this very channel about these issues with someone who um, is more qualified than I to talk about them. Um, in the meantime, I encourage you to to listen, um, to try to understand. There's some really good resources out there. I just watched uh, over the weekend with Sally, uh, watched a documentary on Netflix, and the documentary is called 13th. It's about the 13th Amendment, um, and it focuses on criminal justice reform and specifically mass incarceration, um, but in a broader sense, a lot of the systemic racism that we do have in America. I learned a ton, um, and honestly, the documentary convicted me about the fact that I didn't know about this before. I mean, um, ignorance is no defense, but I have to admit that I'm ignorant on a lot of the struggles that our black brothers and sisters face. So I encourage you to, to think about that, um, to pray about that. And I encourage you to pray for this whole situation in general. Um, as I mentioned, we recorded this just as the protests were kicking off. So we acknowledge the protests a little bit in this episode, but it was really before, before the, these protests, they, they were in major cities here and there, including Denver, where Kevin lives. Um, but it's really since this, since we recorded this episode, that this has become a national conversation. Uh, I'm glad it does. I hope that George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others, you know, we've had over the years, Philando Castile and Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. I hope none of those deaths and, and countless others um, have been in vain. I hope that we can we can finally have a reckoning here. Um, finally, have have helpful, productive conversations about how to solve this problem. And let's be let's be real too that this problem is not going to be solved overnight. Um, that, you know, we've had, we had 345 years of, um, either slavery or enforced segregation. Um, and then in, in the civil rights act of the 1960s, we can't expect that, you know, all of that damage, all of that dehumanizing, um, you know, removal of the dignity of our black brothers and sisters can be over, uh, undone 
in a period of, you know, 50 years. Um, it's not going to happen. It never, it never was going to happen. So we need to recognize that too, that, um, this will take a conscious effort from all of us. Um, and perhaps most importantly, it'll take, uh, the assistance of, of the Holy spirit. And we talk about, um, the Holy spirit a little bit on this podcast, but we're in the season of ordinary time. Now, uh, we recorded this perhaps fittingly on Pentecost Sunday. Um, and we talk about St. Philip Neri on this as well, who has, who had a great devotion to the Holy spirit. So anyway, with that caveat, let's go ahead and listen to Hannah Brockhouse. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today we have a lot to talk about. We are sitting down with Hannah Brockhouse, who's a reporter for the Catholic News Agency based in Rome. And I'm joined uh, as a co-host by Kevin Boschman, who is coming to us live from his house in Denver. Yay, return. So um, Hannah, you're coming to us from Rome. I'm going to give my listeners here a little bit of your bio, but uh, you guys are both in major cities. How's the, uh, how's the COVID impact right now as we sit here on May 31st? Well, um, I think a lot of people know that Italy was one of the hardest hit countries um, and one of the first um, kind of before it had its major impact on the U.S. But um, now life is kind of feels like it's returning to normal, normal with masks and, you know, physical distancing. But um, people are starting to go back out again, see their friends, um, hopefully soon travel between regions will open up again. So for those who don't live in the same city as their families, they'll be able to visit. Great. That's good news. Kevin, how about you? I also know that uh, in Denver, there was a, a uh, curfew last night due to these um, this uh, unrest that's uh, been instigated by the uh, murder of George Floyd. It's really, it's been a horrible thing to see. I mean, my city here is relatively unaffected, but I know some larger cities in the U.S., including Denver, have seen a good amount of unrest yeah pretty it's pretty tragic i mean yesterday i don't live close enough to downtown to where i I wasn't personally affected by it but definitely i think on friday uh there was some very peaceful protests in the day um actually i think the local or denver police kind of praised the protesters early in the day for um voicing their opinions in a very peaceful manner but as night fell you know the kind of in my personal opinion, probably individuals who are not really associated with the protests tend to come out and take advantage of a situation and um, some damage to public buildings and rioting. Um, so as a result of that, we had a curfew. Um, very strange and interesting times. You consider at the same time with the, the COVID and um, kind of also seeing some of the restrictions lifted and people probably a little restless getting back out into the streets and then all of the social unrest that's happening as well. It's kind of a volatile combination, I think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, uh, when you have a situation where there's lots of unemployment, high unemployment, high economic frustration and dissatisfaction, it's not a good, good recipe for, uh, keeping the peace. Um, but anyway, we're going to talk about some different stuff today. We're joined by Hannah uh, for the second time. Hannah, you came on, I think, on, in October of last year. So last fall, we talked all about the Amazon Synod. It was a really good discussion. I learned a lot. We came, uh, you came on uh, in the aftermath of the Synod just to kind of walk us through some of the things in the working document, some of the things that had happened with respect to the, um, the Pachamama as well um, that had, had hit the headlines. So thanks for uh, that discussion. Today, I'm excited to talk to you about some other things that are going on in Rome. Um, this is uh, the same bio with a little bit of an adjustment from the last time. So, Hannah, you're the senior Rome correspondent for a Catholic news agency in Rome, based in Rome, uh, a native of Omaha, Nebraska. You moved to Rome in 2016, so on your four-year anniversary now. 
to write about the Vatican and other news surrounding it. In August of 2018, you went with Pope Francis to the World Meeting of Families in Dublin, and there you covered speeches and breaking news. And then you also reported on refugees and Christianity in the Middle East during a Lebanon trip in Christmas of 2018. And since joining us last fall, you also went with Pope Francis, I think, to Japan and Thailand on another papal trip. So um, how was that? How was Japan and Thailand? I've never been to either country. It was amazing. It was my first time in both those places, too. And I'd love to return someday in the future for maybe not a working trip, I don't know, or for a different kind of working trip. Um, But I really enjoyed that. It was just so interesting. And um, and of course, following the Pope on his trips is always exciting in its own right. Yeah, it seems it seems like Anna that uh, it'd be pretty incredible. I think I remember uh, at some point. Uh, a picture you put it on Twitter, uh, I think it was Twitter, of you on the plane shaking hands with the Pope. It must be such a uh, surreal experience to be able to travel with him. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. And, um, you know, we work really hard, but I think that there are some perks, such as getting to meet the Pope, that make up for that. So Now, when you say you travel with him, are you always traveling on his aircraft? We're on the same plane with him most of the time. There are some trips, um, not necessarily that I've been on, but there are some trips where the Pope might take a helicopter to arrive more quickly, and then the Vatican press corps will go by bus or something, um, a little less, <laughs> a little less exciting. Um, but it means at least for the big flights, you're on the same plane, and um, and then you may not be at every event that he is at or every speech that he gives, but you also do go to some of those. Now, uh, obviously there's the Pope mobile when he drives around in his little car. Does the, uh, does the airplane have a name or like a colloquial nickname? Oh, I don't want to get this wrong. I'm going to sound <laughs> like a really bad Vatican journalist. I think we call it shepherd one shepherd one. Oh, nice. I was it hoping it was something like the, that. Yeah. It's the nickname that it has. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Well, uh, I wanted to have you on today in part to talk about COVID-19 stuff in Rome. As you mentioned already, Italy was one of the hot spots globally for the COVID-19 crisis. In fact, I think it was when the virus had its major outbreak in Lombardy that people really realized this is a serious thing that we need to take seriously. Um, You are obviously in Rome, the epicenter of global Catholicism. In, to my understanding, Rome basically shut down, public masses totally suspended. I think maybe they're just starting to come back, although you can fill me in on this. Uh, big picture question here. What was it like to be in Rome during this time? And then follow on to that. What did the, the church locally in, in Italy, the, your, di- your diocese there, uh, not necessarily what did Pope Francis do, but what did, the, what did the church do to respond? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think there are probably aspects of this pandemic that are probably similar for many people all around the world, right? Such as staying in your home, not going out, um, whether you're working from home or people have lost their jobs. Um, But then there are also really unique things about having been in Rome. I mean, during the worst of it, when we were really in lockdown, um, when public masses were suspended, which they were in Rome for, I believe, around 70 days. it was longer for some of the northern dioceses. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I tried to follow the rules, so I didn't go out too much. Um, but I saw the images that everyone else did of the empty streets. And even now that we're starting to open up um, without tourists, it feels really different. Um, 
for example. I mean, there are Romans and other locals outside, but uh, it's still, the streets are pretty empty. Um, but one thing that I found really interesting, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm one of the really, really fortunate ones during this whole pandemic. Um, you know, I still have my job. I haven't gotten sick and none of my family has. Um, but one thing I did notice when I did need to go out and venture a little bit further from my house during um, the strictest lockdown phase was walking close to the Vatican. And, um, and you know, there's always a lot of homeless in Rome. But something that this pandemic really drove home for me was just their presence, because I think any other time you walk past the Vatican, there's crowds and crowds of people around, and you don't necessarily notice the homeless that live around there, because many of them do. Some of them I know a little bit, because it's the same people that I see and I pass by. Um, but I, I just remember one afternoon that I walked by, and the only people there were, I mean, with some very, very few exceptions, there were police and there were, I mean, probably a hundred um, homeless people around because they didn't have anywhere else to go or because that's their home. I mean, they think of that as their home. Many of them sleep around that area. Um, and um, and so that that was really something that was just eye-opening for me, like uh, the fact that you couldn't ignore it, because I think other times we can ignore it. Um, but I was also lucky enough to get to kind of report as well during this time on what people are doing and what the church is doing to help. So there are a lot of great organizations um, in Rome that are all the time helping the homeless. Um, there's Caritas, there's Sant'Egidio, these are Catholic organizations. Um, and yeah, they're doing this work all the time, going out, um, whether uh, they're handing out sandwiches or they're welcoming people into shelters. So they really, really stepped up during the pandemic and um, tried to open up even more space, tried to make things, you know, they tried to keep things as as safe as possible and cut down on risk of spreading the virus, but at the same time, trying to welcome more and more people so that they had somewhere to go that could be like a home to them um, since they obviously couldn't stay at home like the rest of us. So um, that was just, I think that's something that stood out to me, I guess. And um, that's something that I think I'll be thinking about for a while. We also were lucky enough, I know not everywhere had this, but um, our churches in Rome, in particular, um, the, the Diocese of Rome, they kind of reversed <laughs> after one day, they reversed the decision to like close, close the churches, and then they allowed them to reopen. So just for private prayer, um, not every church, but many of them did. And I noticed as well in my neighborhood parish that um, that was somewhere that the homeless were going as well to get out of the sun and, and have some place to be um, during the day. So um, yeah, those are some of my impressions, I guess. That's so sad to hear about the homeless population that's disproportionately affected. I've been a, a um, major critic of a lot of the policy responses to COVID-19. Uh, Kevin's probably chuckling a little bit because I've talked to him about some of my frustrations. He would probably consider me uh, overly skeptical of some of the policy responses. But one of my main complaints all along is that these, these things that governments across the world have done have disproportionately affected those who have a very difficult time making a living for themselves. And, you know, I, I go on Twitter or other sorts of social media 
and see people saying like, just stay home. It's that easy. Well, it's not that easy if what, you know, people don't have a home. It's not that easy if, um, if, you know, you have to leave your home to make any money and your work has been shut down, uh, you know, uh, by forces outside of your control, uh, without your input, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's sad to hear that you know, the, the, some of the consequences we've seen here in America are also being felt elsewhere around the globe. I, I am very hopeful that the church will be awake to that reality. It sounds like some of the organizations you mentioned in Italy already are. And I hope that, um, we can step up our, our efforts to help the rest of humanity who has been really affected by this, either losing someone, you know, being in poor health themselves, you know, uh, being somehow physically affected by it or losing income, loss of means, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. Mm, yeah. I, I know one thing, one thing we've had in the U S here is some disagreement or some friction between churches. Um, in, in some cases, I mean, including the Catholic church, Catholic diocese, I think in, in, for the most part, um, the U S CCB has been pretty, uh, consistent in following the advice of local health authorities, but I've seen some um, news articles about uh, other churches. Uh, there's one in, in California that appealed to the Supreme Court, I think, to hear their uh, their case trying to stay an executive order of California Governor Gavin Newsom that they couldn't have religious services, at least in the way they wanted to, et cetera. So there's been some friction here between churches and civil authorities on COVID-19 restrictions and whether or not we can or cannot worship, et cetera. Have you seen something similar in Italy? Um, or maybe a, a parallel question, is there like a, is there a, a significant part of the populace that's frustrated that they can't have masses publicly? Uh, that's a really difficult question for me to answer because it's something that I've actually kind of try, been trying to wrap my brain around, being American myself, um, politically what's happening in the US from kind of a distance and then yeah, just being kind of a stranger to Italian politics. Um, I think it's been quite different. I wouldn't say there hasn't been tension, but I think the tension has been different than what I've asked. Um, And I don't know if it's stemming from the fact that this is a very Catholic country and with a Catholic history and culture. And so that kind of struggle for religious liberty as Catholics maybe hasn't been forefront. Personally, I was a little disappointed in what I'd say, like the leadership of the Catholic bishops in Italy. And that's just my personal opinion. Um, because it, it, with the exception of some northern dioceses that had to uh, suspend public masses first, it did kind of feel like after that, um, the bishops were taking their cues from the government. And even when it came down to us moving into, you know, what was called our phase two. So coming out of the strict lockdown, letting some businesses reopen, it, it took a long time for there to be a plan about the masses. Um, and and then there, when there was anyway, there was kind of a cooperation between the bishops and the government to the point that you don't really know the protocol for the masses. You don't really know who wrote it, you know, it had both signatures, both of the prime minister and of the president of the of the whole Italian bishops conference. So at that point, it wasn't even the dioceses locally um, deciding it was kind of a joint. The government said, we, you can do this and here's how you should do it. And you should wear masks and the priest needs to wear masks and um, and gloves when giving out communion and and all that. So. Um, I, I don't think the tension was quite the same, like I said, for that reason. I don't I don't think that um and maybe and maybe in a in a bad way too, if if that makes sense. Like almost like maybe Italians should be more worried about religious 
liberty, if that makes sense. So it's like good and bad, maybe, because I guess there was maybe less conflict. But, you know, sometimes we do need to um, kind of stand up for ourselves. And as Europe, I think, becomes more secular and for sure, like the government here is very uh, secular. Um, it's something that I don't, I'm, I'm getting kind of theoretical, but it's something that I think it'll be interesting to watch how Italy responds coming from kind of a culture that takes its religious rights for granted, you know? So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Italy certain doesn't ha certainly doesn't have the same heritage of uh, sort of state resistance that America has in the same, um, obsession i don't mean obsession in a negative sense but the you know obsession in the sense that it's like part of our identity of religious freedom um so that, that's all interesting i remember seeing it you probably saw this as a as a dedicated vatican watcher but i remember seeing this proposal um for the distribution of communion that would involve like the priest putting in a you know sterile environment putting the host in like a plastic bag and then sending it around to people's homes and cardinal sarah was like absolutely not <laughs> that is yeah. not what we're doing yeah, you know, I I kind of looked into that when yeah, when that Cardinal Sarah interview came out and from what I saw, so I hope this is true, I don't think that was ever a serious consideration. Um you know, the Italian press tends to have like lots of like they I don't know, like leaks of information that later are just like not real. <laughs> and um and so I hope that was one of them that was just kind of like Oh, the government is considering this, but wasn't maybe a real proposal. At least anyway, I'm glad that didn't come true. Um, I do know, I'm sure there were individual parishes that were probably doing some things that were not, we're not all that kosher. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm glad things are at least seeming to improve a little bit. And yeah, speaking of, you know, things improving, uh, Hannah, one, one event that I remember pretty vividly from kind of the height of the pandemic in Italy that I, I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, your perspective as, as someone who, who was living there was um, Pope Francis's uh, Orbi et Orbi blessing kind of right in the middle of all this, which uh, again, for the listeners, this is, you know, the most solemn blessing that the Catholic church can bestow upon the world. And um, a lot of people, at least back here in the United States, what I, what I've, kind of heard reflected in the press is that this really has the potential to be one of the defining moments of Pope Francis's papacy because of the way that this blessing took place. Um, lots of viewership because people, you know, in kind of the depths of, of a depression or despair because of world events viewed this and you saw this, um, this holy man almost kind of like limping around, but in just this most beautiful way, um, bestowing this blessing upon the world. And I would love to hear um, kind of what the perception in, in Rome and in Italy was and kind of what your personal experience with that was as well. Yeah, well, just on a on a data level, um, Italy, you know, any of the broadcasters that were broadcasting that um, that event with the Pope, they obviously saw huge, spi huge spikes in viewership. So I think many, many people in Italy saw it just like around the world. And I was personally a little bit taken aback by the global response to that and really touched as well because I'm I mean it's my job to follow what the Pope does every single day and you know not everything he says and does gets a lot of attention um and sometimes um undeservedly but 
yeah, I was blown away by the response. And I think that that was absolutely right. And um, I've just been really, really impressed, obviously, with the Pope's spiritual leadership uh, during this pandemic. And I think that that was probably the peak moment. Um, but in general, I think he really, really shown as he's really shown as the, um, uh, you know, the pastor that he is. So that moment, yeah, was was so powerful. I mean, the you know, I think it's just everything coming together, right? The rain, the dark, the the light, the it it kind of reminds me about how we you know we care at mass about beautiful music and a beautiful church and all those things. That wasn't in the basilica, which is beautiful on its own. I think that was another thing that was so spectacular about it was just how powerful it was visually um being him being out there and alone too again in the piazza with where most people have seen the piazza filled with people so it was a powerful image and um and i'm really glad and i'm and um that not just catholics also you know were really uh touched by that yeah you'd be better qualified than me to make this judgment hannah but i wonder if when this is all said and done if that Orbi at Orbi blessing and in general, Pope Francis's pastoral leadership during this will be seen as kind of the defining moment of his papacy. Um, because I think he has, I think he has navigated it very well. I think he has provided the church with leadership that it has desperately needed. I mean, you were talking about how some of your frustrations, personally speaking, um, you know, existed with the Italian bishops for um, sort of not, not thinking through things well enough, not fighting hard enough, et cetera. My frustrations have been the same with um, the American leadership in general, not pointing fingers at any specific cleric or bishop. But I think the the um, sort of knee jerk reaction from bishops has been, let's safeguard the physical health of the flock. And I, I, that's important. And I recognize that there's a role to be had there for sure. But I want the first question of any bishop or priest to be, how can I safeguard the spiritual health and vitality of, of my flock or, or my parish? Um, I don't think that was the first impulse of many clerics, again, not pointing fingers at specific ones, but I, I wish it were, you know, I, I'm not someone who says like, we never should have shut down masses or anything like that. I think there's an argument for doing that. I think there's a good argument for doing that. I think there's a way to do that appropriately. Um, but I don't think that happened everywhere, the, the appropriate way. Um, and I don't think that, um, the bishops and priests in many places were active enough in trying to get their people back to the sacraments and trying to make the sacraments available. Um, and, and I appreciate how Francis was not even necessarily pushing to, to, you know, reopen, et cetera. Um, to my knowledge, again, correct me if I'm wrong to my knowledge, he hasn't like articulated, you know, dates for reopening or, or said something like that. But one thing that struck me that he did was, um, it, when the faithful started to get cut off from the mass, um, and in many cases, confession, he publicly said, uh, basically reiterated what the catechism says, like you don't need to go to confession to be forgiven by God. That is the ordinary means of reconciliation. But, you know, the catechism says, um, make a humble confession to God earnestly and intend to go to confession as soon as you can. Um, and I think that struck a lot of people. It's like, wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. You know, why, why isn't my bishop saying that? Why isn't my, my priest saying that? Right. All I'm being told is that I can't even do drive up confessions, whatever. Right. So, um, I wonder if this will be, when we look back on all this, the defining moment of the Francis papacy. Yeah, I think, I, I think it would be great if this was his legacy. Um, I, I think it'll depend on what comes next, to be honest. So 
it kind of depends on how he and the rest of the church hierarchy respond to some of the questions that people still have. I, I think obviously a lot of a lot of what's going on in the world right now, you know, we've shifted view from from what we were talking about before with the virus and now as well with um, racial issues in the US. But I think that if he could keep up that kind of exactly that kind of spiritually, I mean, during his mass as well, he would have make a spiritual communion with everyone at the end of his daily masses that were being live streamed. I think that was along with the making a, um, a, a you know, perfect act of contrition. I think that that, that was another element. He said, look, I'm here with you and I'm helping you. Um, even if you can't be, uh, receive the sacraments. Uh, yeah, I guess I don't really have much to add. I, I think that if he could take that and carry that forward and, um, you know, maybe like church governance stuff isn't uh, isn't his forte or his strong point. But if he could kind of, you know, if, if that could kind of get improved from here on out, then hopefully we could see his legacy be focused on on just the positive stuff that he's done during this lockdown. Now, one thing I saw you wrote recently for CNA uh, is an article about Pope Francis renewing another commission or creating another commission to examine um, the female diaconate, women's diaconate. Um, and this struck me. I wanted to get your take on this. What's what's going on here? I know this has been an ongoing discussion really for decades in the church. And Francis has been, has at least, I think we can say, fairly signaled openness to the idea of uh, ordination um, of women to the diaconate, you know, a, a different type of diaconate in all likelihood, et cetera. But he's established, I think now two commissions to, to examine this question. He has certainly not closed the door to it. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this, especially given what you said, you know, this, a lot of his legacy will sort of depend on what comes next. Um, and so can we talk about this a little bit? What's going on with this, this commission to examine women's ordination? Yeah, well, this actually ties in well to our last conversation from the Amazon Synod because this new commission um, was basically something asked for by the Synod of Bishops uh, on the Amazon, and uh, the Holy Father promised at the in his informal remarks at the very very end of the whole Synod that he would establish a new commission uh, to keep studying this question. We still don't really know uh, what its principal focus will be because. As you said, there was another commission formed in 2016 to study the question, and it had kind of a historical focus. So it was focused on study what was this. We know there was some kind of female deaconess uh, in the early church, but there's been some debate and about what their role was exactly. And so they studied the commission studied that question specifically, and in the end, what happened was I think they didn't reach a conclusion on what that meant now as far as having um, some kind of female permanent diaconate or or something else. They couldn't agree, the commission. And Pope Francis seemed kind of content to leave it there. He said, oh, they'll keep working, but we'll leave it there. But then he responded to this request to do more. So looking at the new members, because it's all new members of, the new, of this uh, new commission, um, looking at those, many of them are themselves permanent deacons, men who are theologians who have written and uh, thought and, and taught extensively about, you know, what is the diaconate, what is the permanent diaconate. So to me, I 
I have a feeling that means that this commission is meant to look more at, um, you know, modern application, perhaps, you know, um, getting away. We've, we've, we've looked at the historical question with the other commission. They, they answered the historical questions. Now is, you know, what does that mean for right now? Because we didn't also always have the permanent diaconate, male diaconate like we have. So we don't, we still don't have very much information on the work of the commission, if they've started, what they're doing. Um, you know, they're from all over the world. So we're waiting for that. But yeah, like I said, just looking at the new membership, I kind of wonder if it's going to be looking more at today's church and, and all this. Now, the Pope himself in his, um, in his, uh, in his document, his post-synodal apostolic exhortation for the Amazon Synod, he made a pretty big point of praising the contribution of women to the church, but saying, you know, he doesn't want us to functionalize women in the church and he doesn't want us, it seemed pretty clear to me, he was saying he doesn't want us to get so focused on this question of, you know, women's ordination, because right now the permanent diaconate, I mean, that's part of holy orders, um, so an ordained ministry in the church. And we know the church teaches that only men are ordained as priests. And so um, it seemed pretty clear to me that he was like, you know, let's not undervalue women's contribution by thinking like it's only valuable if it's this one kind of role. Um, instead, no, we know. And in the Amazon, especially women, especially women religious, um, are extremely important to the church, at, you know, as, as they are already. Um, so I, I think, yes, I think the Pope is, this Pope about, about a lot of issues is really open to debate. He's really open to study whether, you know, whether he himself like has an idea already of what he wants to do on this issue. I'm more inclined to think that he's, he's more, he's more likely to go with the status quo than to make big changes in this area. But I mean, this is just my my prediction. I think you, you make a really good point uh, right at the end of your comment there about um, it's kind of a very philosophical framework, like really philosophical method. He seems very open to discussion and, and people, a lot of people who are looking for, a, I don't know, maybe a firmer hand or, or more direct guidance are somewhat uncomfortable with it. But it is a very academic philosophical mindset that this pope seems to have of um, just because you're talking about something doesn't mean just because you open something up for debate and discussion doesn't mean that you are trending one direction or the other it's um dare i say kind of je jesuitical <laughs> because he is a jesuit right and in the jesuit order as an academic uh, or at least i won't call them an academic order but an order that really really values education and academics um, their charism naturally, I think, inclines towards uh, what many people might view as uh, a willingness to discuss questions that are taboo or in other spheres would be um, undiscussable. But in the realm of academia, the idea is that, you know, nothing is closed for debate. And discernment, right? That's obviously mm -hmm. really important yeah, to Pope Francis too. Discernment, um, listening to the Holy Spirit. So I think that's an aspect too. Yeah, I think uh, both of those points are very well taken. For, for my part, one thing I really appreciate about Pope Francis, um, and, and Hannah, you already mentioned this, is his insistence that we can't reduce the role of women 
to a just functionary perspective, right? That like that will have, um, you know, will have full equality or uh, full incorporation, full appreciation of the feminine dimension once women are in X role, right? That's a completely functional perspective that doesn't do justice to the Marian or feminine dimension of the church. I think it was Cardinal, um, is it Ouillet? Uh, how do you pronounce, is that how you pronounce his name? I don't know. Sorry. Okay. It's like, o- it, it, it's, how, it's how we pronounce it on this show. <laughs> O-U-E-L-L-E-T, I think. Mark Ouillet. Ouillet. It's probably like Ouillet. I say Ouillet, but I don't know how to pronounce French. Okay, so. we'll, we'll go with Ouillet. <laughs> so he, the other day, it called for the, for, um, the role of women in seminary formation more. And I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, especially when you consider our Lord entered public ministry at age 30. Who was his primary influence for the first 30 years of his life? It was his mother, Mary, of course, right? So the Marian dimension of the church, of course, um, played a huge role in our Lord's formation. And, uh, you know, if we can draw, draw a corollary between our Lord's first 30 years and seminary formation of our priests. Um, so I think involving more women in the, the formation of men in seminaries is a fantastic idea. Uh, but that is, again, a like non- functional perspective saying that like once they're in this role um then we'll have we'll have a, you know achieve what we need to achieve as far as social progress goes etc um so this is helpful is there a timeline hannah on the commission when will we hear some results from this or is it just sort of open-ended right now oh, i wish i knew i wish i knew so i'm i i'm hoping to reach out to some of the theologians themselves and see if if they're willing to share more information, but really, yeah, right now we don't know. And I don't, especially with it being formed right before everything shut down, travel and everything. I, I don't know if they've gotten started or not. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we'll stay tuned. Maybe you can come back on to uh, talk to us about it whenever that happens. But before we go today, we've got 10 minutes or so left. Um, I'd love to talk about uh, some, some sort of more, more timeless things um, in the church. And those are, Three men who either are saints, are about to be saints, or are on their way to being saints. Um, Matteo Farini, Charles Foucault, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, and, and St. Philip Neri. So let's go in that order, Hannah. You wrote a couple articles about um, Foucault and Farini recently. Matteo Farini is now blessed. Um, and who, who is this, this character? I told my girls a little bit about his life. Um, super inspiring guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, so he's actually just venerable now. Venerable. Um, and it hasn't been beatified yet, but he's super impressive. Um, he died in 2009 at the age of 19. He had a, a brain tumor that he battled for several years, but um, but just a all around normal teenager. Uh, you know, he had a girlfriend his last few years of high school. He had a band. He loved music. Um, but he just besides having this very close relationship to God, he just felt this, he just had a strong, strong call to evangelize to his peers. And, um, you know, he started when he was, uh, around the time he started getting sick when he was 13, he decided to uh, keep a journal. And I think that's so um, incredible. Just, I just saw some, you know, just some few quotes from his journal, and I'm sure there's more there that is just so insightful and wise. But he talks about something I think we can all relate to from when we were adolescents and even now about, you know, wanting to be true to your Christian principles, but also wanting to fit in with your friends and 
get along with the crowd. And, and he struggled with that too, but, um, but just felt so, you know, was just so convicted of, of the need to, you know, help guide them away from sin and, um, and, and teach them that like true happiness, true beatitude is relationship with God and, um, you know, and uh, being part of the church. It's just very, very inspiring. And then obviously the suffering that he went through, he just took that so positively as well. Um, yeah, really inspiring guy. I love these examples of folks who are on their way to sainthood, in his case, uh, declared venerable at not beatified, as I misspoke, um, who are just, like you said, so normal, right? Like it's, it's hard for me to look at Thomas Aquinas and be like, I can be like that someday. Uh, it's amazing to look at someone who is comparatively much more like us and, and see that, um, that Christ's graces work through that and that the church can recognize that and then hold that up as an example. So that's, that's um, really cool. How about, um, how about Charles Foucault, who is about to be canonized? Yeah. So I'm just learning about him now too. I mean, one of the perks of my job, when I write about uh, these holy people, I get to learn about them. So he just sounds as well, like, uh, such a, like interesting person with such an interesting background. Um, that's something that struck me. I mean, he spent the last years of his life in the Sahara desert, um, you know, living like side by side with the people there, being a brother to them, um, you know, bringing them to faith just through his example. And then, you know, he was, he was killed. Many called him a a martyr. So, um, but he was basically assassinated, um, by a group of men. But before that, uh, you know, he was a soldier. He, kind of followed in the footsteps of his grandfather who raised him and he had, uh, his family had money. And so, you know, in his youth, he was a little bit loose in his morals, you know, um, but he went, he decided he, when he left, uh, when he left the military, he decided to, um, to go on a very dangerous expedition to Morocco, which at the time, you know, if a Christian went to French, Mar- I, uh, went to Morocco, it just, um, you know, they would be killed probably. So he disguised himself as, um, as a Jewish man and traveled around Morocco and, um, a lot of his writings and, and that notes he took from that ended up have been, um, extremely useful, like geographically. But he also learned a lot. And one of the things, um, one of the big, uh, the big impetus for his kind of uh, reversion to the faith, because coming from France, um, his family had been Catholic, but he had really lost his faith, was seeing how the strong in their belief the Muslims were. And he had to ask himself, you know, God, like, if you exist, you know, help me know that you exist. And when he returned to France, he sought out a holy priest and um, learned from him and and in his late 20s, came back to his Catholic faith. And from that point on, it was just like he was all in for his faith. Um, He was a Trappist monk for a while. He was a hermit in the Holy Land for a while because he also felt a strong call to... um, you know, to live the same life that Jesus in, uh, lived in Nazareth. So he was a hermit in Nazareth and then yeah, eventually uh, lived as a kind of religious brother um, in the desert. So 
just an incredible life. And I haven't read them personally, but I've been told that his writings are really something. So um, I'm looking forward to diving into those. Great. Well, thanks for that overview. Yeah, it sounds like a, a good person to learn more about. I had honestly never even heard of him before the canonization announcement. So I was uh, I was excited to read a little bit of your writing about his life, and, and I want to dive in some more. Last one I want to talk about. This person's already a saint, very much a saint, uh, St. Philip Neri. And we don't have a ton of time left, so maybe I can just ask you for like a, you know, one or two of your favorite things about this man's life. But I will mention that I uh, owe a special debt to um, St. Philip Neri because he founded the um, Congregation of the Oratory, the Oratorians. And the Oratorians have a parish in Oxford called the Oxford Oratory that um, Sally and I attended when, uh, when we were in grad school in England. And uh, we, didn't, we didn't convert to Catholicism while in England, but it was, it was where the seeds of our conversion were planted, and we converted shortly after returning to the U.S. after grad school was over. Um, but the Oxford Oratory was filled with wonderful oratorians who were holy men of God, great preachers, a great parish life there. We made some great friends in our parish. Um, you know, we, we were able to attend daily mass there and solemn mass, and uh, it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience and a wonderful way to uh, encounter the richness of the faith. Um, as we were on our way to, to becoming Catholic. So uh, I really appreciate St. Philip Neri. He also had, um, he has a story of, um, as Pentecost approached, his heart beating so fast um, within him, and he had a great devotion to the Holy Spirit. This is especially appropriate. We're recording this on Pentecost, so happy solemnity to both of you. I'm obviously not going to release it today. Um, so listeners will be hearing this a little bit after the Feast of Pentecost, but I think an appropriate saying to talk about today. So um, you, I think a couple years ago, Hannah wrote an article about St. Philip Neri. So just give us some highlights from this wonderful man of God's life. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you have this, um, this kind of personal uh, connection to him. And I, I think honestly, whether we know it or not, we all owe a lot to this saint. Um, especially I feel that living in Rome because he came to Rome at a time of huge cultural and religious upheaval and became what many people call the third apostle of Rome, you know, after Peter and Paul. So I think if anyone has ever been to Rome and experienced, you know, this this very Catholic city, they they owe um they owe that a little bit to to St. Philip Neri and his evangelization, re-evangelization of the city really. Um, you know, you mentioned the story about his heart that is especially apt. I mean, this guy more or less literally had a heart that was on fire. I mean, we use that figuratively a lot to speak about people, you know, their heart was on fire for this or that. And, and his like really was, I mean, he was, before he was a priest, he was praying in the catacombs of Rome and, um, and he, he felt like the Holy Spirit, like fire come into him. And just, I mean, I, I think if I'm getting the details right, like he more or less passed out from this, this burning feeling. And then he never really talked about it during his life. He kind of revealed this more at the end, but like throughout his life, he would have these moments where he felt the, the burning in his chest. And, um, you know, people would even like sometimes when he would encounter people, whether it was the poor on the street or I don't know, a young man or something, you know, he would pull them to his chest to calm them down. Um, but he never really like, you know, explained what it was, but they would, they would, you know, immediately feel peace and, and, and calmness being close to his chest. So that's one just 
just one amazing story about this guy. Um, another one that people might not know about is uh, is a miracle that he performed in Rome. He um, more or less, not more or less, he did raise um, a young man from the dead who had died of a, of a local noble family. And now every year on the day of the anniversary of that miracle, this family, which still owns their property, they have a beautiful palazzo here in Rome, um, they open up their, their house for people to come and they have a beautiful chapel with multiple altars and priests come and just say the mass there all throughout the day. And it's it's actually a local feast just in on their property, um, which is kind of unique thing that the church uh, granted them that, that it's a feast day um, in their property. But um, just, yeah, just incredible saint. So I encourage people to get to know him better too. And if you, if many people know um, uh, Saint, Cardinal Don Henry Newman as well, uh, another oratorian that if St. Philip Neri hadn't founded the oratorians, you know, um, who knows, who knows what happened, but, uh, yeah. And in fact, um, uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman, uh, helped to establish the Oxford oratory that I was speaking about. Uh, Newman of course converted in Oxford or just outside of Oxford. And then he was at the Birmingham oratory for a long time. But my understanding is that he was, he was heavily involved in the establishment of that Oxford oratory that that I went to. So I'm, I'm indebted to St. Philip Neri through John Henry Newman, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Hannah, for this discussion. I think uh, if we can end on that note about St. Philip Neri and his um, devotion to the Holy Spirit, as we celebrate Pentecost today, and we head into ordinary time, during which time I'll release this episode, I think we should all pray to St. Philip Neri uh, and ask him to intercede for us that this ordinary time as we enter will be far from ordinary of course ordinary doesn't refer to like any inactivity of the holy spirit but rather just the fact that we're not in a special liturgical season um and as we as the church emerge from this covid19 pandemic um and continue to confront a lot of the challenges that we face like all the the racial uh, injustice that we already talked about the in increasing and encroaching secularism that's always there uh we need we need the intercession of saints like philip neri we need the assistance of the holy spirit in helping us advance uh, the truth and draw closer to to our Lord and Savior. So thanks so much for joining us, Hannah. To our listeners, uh, I want to encourage you to follow Hannah's work. You can follow her on Twitter at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, Brockhaus, B-R-O-C-K-H-A-U-S. Again, she writes for Catholic News Agency, so you can also, I, I encourage you to follow the Catholic News Agency um, and support their work if you can at all, because they do really good work. Hannah, thanks so much for keeping us up to date on what's going on in Rome. We'd love to have you on the show again soon and a happy solemnity to you. Thank you both. Real pleasure. All right. To our listeners, if you have a question for Hannah, you can reach out directly on Twitter. You can also send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at credocatholic.com. I'd be happy to pass on any comments or questions you have directly to Hannah. With that, have a great day. God bless you. Peace. Peace.